it's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Laura Perry and Michael Steindl. Hey Morning guys. Kay. Good morning. Today we're going to be talking with Margaret Blakers from the Green Institute in Canberra, and she's an experienced organiser, researcher and long-time environmental activist. She was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia this year. After reading Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, she was determined to work for the environment. In 1973, she worked on the inquiry into the national estate, and from 1977 to 1984, she organised the publication of the first Atlas of Australian Birds. From 1984, she spent 12 years working on environmental campaigns, including coordination of the environment movement's response to the Victorian timber industry inquiry. In 1992, she helped to set up the Victorian Greens, which then led to the establishment of the Australian Greens. Over the next 10 years, Margaret worked as an advisor to Senator Bob Brown and took leave in 2000-2001 to organise the first Global Greens Congress. In 2008, she established the Green Institute, an Australian Greens policy think tank. Good morning, Margaret. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kay, and hi, everyone. Everybody's Good here morning, and ready mate. to go. <laughs> Good. The technology works. <laughs> we outlined in the introduction that you've been involved in the environmental movement since you were at uni. Was that some, the environment something you were always concerned about when you were young? Um, well, as you said, uh, when I was at high school, actually, I read uh, Silent Spring. and As we all um, did in those days. <laughs> as everybody did. In, well, not everybody, but quite a few people did in those days. I mean, Rachel Carson was a very, very influential environmentalist uh, long before it was fashionable to be so. Yes. And certainly Silent Spring had an absolutely... Um, transformative impact on me and I still remember the you know the re reading the first few pages and um, just how shocking it was and it was about the uh, the casting forward about the possible effects of, of um, using broad-scale using use of pesticides like DDT and so on and how that might impact on wildlife um, and I, I've never read it since and I really don't want to because no. I think I would find it horribly kind of it had such an impact over, didn't overstated, it but um it certainly had the right effect on me and um from then on i've been an, a greenie yeah yeah no I, I remember i got such a shock from it myself when i read it i, I haven't read it since either yeah <laughs> uh margaret uh i just wanted to have a little chat about your work in the environmental sector and given that it's international or it was international women's day this week on tuesday um, I'm really glad we have an option, uh, an opportunity to talk to you. So 
you were presented with the Order of Australia uh, this year, I believe. So what was that for, uh, firstly, and can you tell us what this means to you and, you know, how it will help with your work? Um, well, it was for work on, in, on environment and conservation. Um, the way it works is you are, you're, you, you're nominated by uh, a person or a group of people, a group in my case, and it's all secret, so they don't tell you. And um, then there's a committee which uh, goes through all the nominations and makes the decision. So I'm actually really glad to have been um, given the award this year because, as anyone who follows this sort of thing will realise, the it's a minority of women who, uh, or the the proportion of women is fairly low who get these awards. Mm. And, of course, the proportion of people who get it for work on environment and conservation is fairly low as well. So I feel like I'm flying a bit of a flag for both of those. Absolutely. Good, really, um, yeah, it's good because I think, for, for me, obviously, both of them are, are really, really important. And if you think about the role of women in the environment movement um, in Australia, let's say, um, it's really clear that women in many ways are the backbone of the movement. They're the ones who are there doing the mail-outs, if people still do mail-outs, but, um, you know, doing the legwork. But by and large, the leadership is male or male-dominated, at least. Um, And we need to change that in two ways. We need to change what women aspire to, what roles women aspire to play, uh, but also we need to change the definition and the, and the way we think about leadership because many of the women who you have never heard of are actual, I would consider as leaders, um, but they just do leadership in a different way. It's not the, um, not the sort of normal out the front, you know, charging along with a flag type of leadership. It's a, the very steady work that needs to be done to make any sort of movement, any sort of campaign actually uh, be effective. Absolutely. It seems that women are, I guess, prepared to put up with a lot more. And in lots of cases, we see men more prepared to demand their rights as far as like pay and conditions. Um, For example, Mm. particularly uh, like women of your generation. uh, What kind of changes have you seen uh, in the environmental sector since you started out? Um, And is that a trend of society or do you see um, sort of a greater place in environments? How how do you see it? well, I guess the main change is actually the the professionalisation of the environment movement. Um, so that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there were very few paid jobs working uh, to, in the, to protect the environment in non-government organisations. And now we have a whole swag of organisations that have paid staff. Um, but we don't really have the kind of career structures or the supportive arrangements around them that would enable women to play a stronger role. Um, I think it's fabulous that Kelly O'Shaughnessy has now become the uh, CEO of of the Australian Conservation Foundation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good step. But the other senior um, people in those larger organisations, I think, pretty much are all men. Yes. So when... and to some degree, you know, the issues of women in the environment movement are not that different from women in any other professionalised structure. Mm. So we've got to fight those same battles. But one interesting sort of observation to make is that 
in the um, sectors against which we're contending, so mining, for example, logging, um, the, they are some of the most male-dominated sectors in the country or in the world, in fact. And so we've got, as women in the environment movement, we have to think about our role in the movement itself, but also think about the, the, the kinds of groups against which we're contending and the way in which um, women are received or perceived by our um, adversaries. Mm, absolutely. Uh, you've described your leadership role as one of those things that just has to be done um, and that you, you become a little impatient uh, when other people can't see how obvious it is um, that this needs to be done. Uh, and therefore, let's just do it. So has that been a bit of a driving force for you through your career, Margaret? Oh, look, I wouldn't describe myself as having a career, actually. So um, it's really you know, more like what you just said. You know, here's, here's yeah. the problem that's in front of your nose. OK, let's see what we can do about it and, um, and you know, create the, the networks or the, the structures, if necessary, to support that. And, it, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much how I've, uh, it, it, as I said, I, you know, I certainly didn't start out to have a career in inverted commas. Yeah, I started out because, to make a difference because I wanted to protect the environment. Um, and I'm afraid that there's probably more now to be done than there was when I started. So. I, I'd agree <laughs> with that. Yeah, absolutely. Bigger and bigger, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes, but it's, you know, for me, that's just my, my way of working. I, I see a gap and then I try to see what I can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like as the environmental movement gets bigger, the, uh, the opposite forces become stronger as well. We mm. seem to be seeing around. Um, you're also the champion of the Green Women's Network. Can you tell us a little about that? Oh, gosh, I didn't know I was a champion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Well, I'm, I'm calling you a champion. You're calling me a champion. Thank you. <laughs> Um, There's that modesty again. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But look, uh, okay, so there is, we're trying to set up at the, at the global level, a global Greens Women's Network. Um, and they've also, we've also had at various times loose um, kind of networks of women, green women. That sounds a bit odd, but anyway, <laughs> women greens in Australia. Um, and I, look, I'm thoroughly, thoroughly supportive of both of those. I just think that unless women are playing an equal role alongside men and vice versa, um, that we're not going to be able to achieve the changes that we want in society or in the world. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you've done a lot of work behind the scenes. There's, um, there's so many areas that you've been involved in and yet your name doesn't you know, come to the fore very often. Um, yeah, well, but yes, I think that's true. And I'm not, I really don't like <laughs> this media. It just gives me the, the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Ah. Um, <laughs> I've never aspired us, to us be... Us too, a, if it's any consolation. <laughs> <laughs> I've never aspired to be a front person. It's just not what I'm interested in or what I do well. Yeah. Um, but I think... Yeah, I guess I'm I'm a good organiser and I'm good at telling people what I think they should do. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly are, from what I can um, tell. And they sometimes listen, sometimes they don't. But, <laughs> you know, basically I think for me the way to get things done is to find, you know, find a bunch of people who are of the same mind and interested in getting on and, you know, 
do putting something together and then do it. Mm-hmm. Just before we talked about that book, Silent Spring, um, you also published the first Atlas of Australian Birds. Did that book have any influence on that? Oh, look, um, so the Bird Atlas, it wasn't just a book. It was actually a five-year project where we recruited volunteers all around Australia to go out and look for birds and then report in what they'd seen and, and where it was. So the main part of it was actually organising all of that and then publishing the book was the, the, um, the last couple of years. And at that stage, I still thought that if, you know, if you could pull together the information, present it in a coherent and, and compelling fashion, that um, things would change. <laughs> I've, I've learned uh, since then, of course, that that's not exactly how it works. You can't, you can't not have the evidence, but the evidence alone is never going to actually get you where you need to go. So the, the Bird Atlas, I think, was a fantastic project. Um, in, it was one of the, well, it's what's now called citizen science, but it was one of the early ones, early projects of that type. And it was a really exciting time, you know, really mm-hmm. going, have people going to some very, very out of the way places. And um, I sort of think about it in retrospect that uh, we were incredibly lucky that um, we pulled it all off without any great um, uh, problems and what could have happened and we just uh, I think it excited a lot of people to be Mm. able to be part of this large national project for the very first time. Yeah and again you drew a whole lot of people in well done. Mm. So in 1984 you spent 12 years working on a number of environmental campaigns can you tell us a bit about the Victorian timber industry inquiry and your role in organising a response? uh, yes, so that was uh, when the Labor government came to power after many years of um, conservative government and the uh, wood chipping, the forests of East Gippsland in particular, was, and, and not just in Victoria of course, but elsewhere, southern New South Wales, WA, so wood chipping native forest was a huge issue um, and the commitment from the incoming Kane government was to have an inquiry. So... Uh, we again pulled together a, a, a consortium of groups and including um, ACF, the NPA, um, Envi- well, what's now Environment East Gippsland, Native Forest Action Committee and various others that have come and gone in the meantime and put in a, a joint submission and put in joint submissions to the inquiry. And that was the point at which we really, for the first time, cottoned on to the fact that plantations which had been put in, so these are pine plantations which had been planted all over the place in the 60s and 70s, were going to uh, grow to maturity within the next 10 or 15 years and that the amount of wood that was coming on stream from these plantations would, if it was managed properly, enable logging to be taken out of native forests entirely. So effectively from then for the next decade we were trying to persuade governments that this was a solution that was a win-win for everybody. Getting uh, the logging out of the forest would be good for workers because logging in native forest is not a particularly attractive or safe uh, industry. It would be good for the industry itself because plantations are a much better feedstock for, uh, for processing and obviously it would be good for the forests. And I have to say, we failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, 
Mm. Um, and we just to kind of echo back to that, we're now coming up to what, what happened at the end of the night or towards the end of the 90s was the introduction of deals between the Commonwealth and the state governments to lock in native forest logging for 20 years. Were they the regional forest agreements that you're talking about? Yes, I was trying not to use that word because I didn't think anybody would know what it was. (laughs) Exactly. So they're just about to expire. And one of the things I think we really have to work on is that they should just be, you know, to use a phrase, dead, buried and cremated. Mm. So there needs to be a big push to try and get rid of them altogether. Yeah, well, hopefully not. doesn't need to be a big push, but that we need to start... um, uh, They need to be not renewed they need to stop when they expire if not before and that we the big push really has to be so how do we want to look after all these forests if they're dedicated to being primarily managed to look after nature so how does the government's direct action policy work in with that oh it doesn't (laughs) it's ridiculous so what we've got with direct action is um on the one hand, the government is, uh, so I'll just step back a bit, there's two programs that the government has, there's the direct action one, and there's the renewable energy target. So what the government has done with the renewable energy target is make it possible to feed native forest wood into power stations and for the power stations to earn renewable energy credits. Mm. In other words, you get paid for using native forest wood to generate electricity. Dirty electricity. Because it's renewable because <laughs> trees grow again? Is that the idea or how, how is there credits yes. attached to that? Yeah, it, basically that's the idea. and it's, a, <laughs> it's an anomaly of the accounting framework, but that's, that's the basic idea. So on the one hand, you've got the government paying power stations potentially to uh, burn native forest wood. And on the other hand, through the Emission Reduction Fund, you've got the government paying people not to cut down uh, forests in other parts of the country. So you've got two diametrically <laughs> opposed policies supposedly meeting the same objective. And it's, it's completely obvious that um, not logging native forests, in other words, leaving them where they are, letting them grow and become mature, will mean more carbon is stored out of the atmosphere in those forests. Mm. Mm. Pretty logical. The problem with the emission, one of the other problems with the Emission Reduction Fund is that it only requires the logging or the clearing to be deferred for 25 years. Mm. So in other words, you get, mm. you get paid to hold off logging or to hold off clearing for 25 years You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show, broadcasting from 3CR in Melbourne and syndicated throughout the Community Radio Network Australia-wide and podcast from both 3CR and BZE. We're speaking with Margaret Blaker, one of Australia's great quiet achievers. Among Margaret's achievements is she founded the Greens in Victoria, leading then to founding the Australian Greens and then on to the Global Greens Congress. And in a first for this program, we've been given an extra 10 minutes today, listeners. Which is great, Margaret, because um, then we can fit in um, a bit of talk on, and discussion on the electricity market and carbon accounting. <laughs> OK. But um, in the meantime, let's just talk about the Greens a little bit because of your substantial role in setting them up. So, and, and that started in 1992, I understand. Uh, so 1992, so I wasn't so much involved in the Australian Greens. I was 
uh, helped Janet Rice, who's now the uh, one of the senators for Victoria, together with some other people, to set up the Victorian Greens at the, towards the end of 1992. So at that stage, we were being you know, eternally frustrated in the environment movement by the inabil- our inability to get political um, attention to what we what we were wanting to achieve. And um, Janet had had been pushing for quite some time to um, have a, a political party that could could take our kind of issues into Parliament directly. So I wasn't quite so keen, but nevertheless I got involved, and um, I thought, okay, I'll give this a you know a year or two or three. Let's just get it set up, and then I can go back to being a normal greenie again. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't quite work out like that. So in the end, uh, we did set up the Victorian Greens. And then in 1996, when Bob Brown got elected in Tasmania, I uh, moved down to Tasmania to um, work with him and uh, stayed there for about, I can't remember now, 10 or 12 years. And during that time, you know, as we were coming up to the... Uh, to the turn of the century, we started thinking, okay, well, what can we do to mark this event that's not going to happen again in any of our lifetimes? And decided that the obvious thing would be to hold a Global Greens conference or Congress. Of course. do. So that's what we did. <laughs> and um, one of the things that's interesting in all of this is just kind of aligning all of these changes to the technological changes that have happened over that period of time. Because if I think back to the first bird atlas, we made the momentous decision to give the birds numbers. So 705 was a magpie, for example, hmm. and asked people to record numbers, not names, so that we could then feed it into a computer. <laughs> and the computer we fed it into was as big as the room that I'm standing in now, which is quite large. <laughs> and, and starting out with, um, you know, with you know, yeah. punch cards and all of that sort of thing. And by the end of the Atlas, we were down to um, the first of the Apple Macs. I think right. it had two gigabytes of memory and we could put the entire Atlas into it. Hmm. And that could fit on a chair. And then, and if you think about it with, in relation to the Greens, in 2001, most of the communication was by phone, actually, and mail, like letters. Yeah. And now we're able to, you know, I can Skype someone in the other side of the world as easily as I can Skype next door. Absolutely. So mm. the, the technological change is actually, you know, there's an interesting kind of echo backwards and forwards between what's possible to organise and what um, and what the technology is that permits that to happen. And I want to come back to that one later, Margaret, with the, the role of technology in climate. There's probably uh, an too. app on your phone these days that you can take a picture of a bird and it will recognise it. It does. Totally. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So. You can certainly uh, you know, check all your bird calls and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Awesome. As long as you record them properly in the first instance, yeah. <laughs> which I haven't yeah. done. Well, and the other thing is you've got um, GPS. So you know oh, where you yes. are. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the problem with the first atlas was just knowing where you were. <laughs> and that increase in technology, has that also then substantially increased the Greens numbers around the world and the interest in the Greens movement? Um, I don't know that the technology per se has. I mean, certainly, uh, I, mean, I, I think that there has to be a global 
Green's family, and that's what we're you know still trying to kind of solidify. Uh, because it's no longer possible to be an Australian Green and not be um, impacted by, say, what the Greens in Europe do or in Japan or wherever, New Zealand. So so they, we need to have some sort of way of saying we're all part of you know, these groups, these Greens are all part of, of, the, of the global Green family. And then beyond that, there's the capacity for being able to um, work together to, to, to achieve political goals. So, and, and the technology certainly enables that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I just thought you might be able to reach a bigger audience quicker, that's all. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But then at the same time, you've got to have the resources to do it. So yeah. that's always a, a, a drama. Yeah. So you also at some stage said it was essential that politics is part of a global process. And we've, we've been hearing all the time to think and being told to think global and act local. In conflict, those two statements. No, I, I mean, I think there are some things that are not going to be solved at the local level. I mean, uh, climate change being the classic one. Uh, we're not going to be able to stop BHP digging up coal mm. just by acting at the local level. Certainly, acting at the local level is part of it, but um, we've got to be able to bring to bear uh, pressure at the, at the at the global level as well, and. Uh, so no, I don't think it's in conflict, but I think we've we've actually got to act globally as well, and we've got to feel ourselves as being global citizens as well as citizens of wherever we happen to live and whatever country we have to live in. I think we have to really develop a uh, sense okay. of ourselves as being um, part of the, the global. Well, global citizens. Mm, yep. We're all in this together, for better or for worse. Yeah. Margaret, um, Michael Beck, and I'm sorry I just landed on you this extra 10 minutes without asking if if you could grace us with that time. Yeah, no, Um, that's fine. Okay, thank you. I I wanted to come back to technology in its literal sense uh, rather than as a communications aid and so on. Um, This is the the BZE science program and and mostly we're talking to people about the newest battery and and, um, the solar schemes and so on. I wondered if you could talk to us a bit about how you see the role of technology in solving the climate issue versus the psychological issues. And just to give you my personal background on that, um, my training is in nuclear physics and, and I'm a scientist through and through. However, when I got into the, got really active in climate change about eight years ago, I thought this is a problem that needs to be solved. And I thought, fantastic, I love energy efficiency and so on. This is a technical problem. Within a year, I realised it was really a psychological problem that we, we had the technologies, I thought, we just couldn't face it. I wonder if you could talk to that at all, if, if you agree with that view or if, if you see it differently? Uh, look, I think that's right. I mean, we're not going to solve the climate issue just with technology. I think technology is essential, but it's not enough. It's a cultural problem, it's a political problem, and it's a psychological problem. And, you know, that that's you can see that loud and clear when, when the... Um, you see the, the what's happening in the coalition at the moment with uh, Tony Abbott leading the charge still for the dinosaurs and mm-hmm. uh, trying to block every move that would take us in the direction that we need to go. And I think we need to... For me, it's at least as much about politics. And the psychology, yes, is essential and the, being able to communicate in ways that... that reach people so I'm not a fan of being a doomsayer because I do think that just paralyzes people 
if you if all you can see in front of you is is a bleak future then it kind of makes you want to curl up into a ball mm-hmm. and not face it at all so you have to have some so that that's the psychology i think you have to give people some hope some something some way that they can kind of gain control to some level at least of their own of their own futures and their own choices but politics is how we as a society make decisions and in australia we have a really um what's the right word sort of fraught relationship with politics somehow it's over there it's dirty it's not part of the community whereas in fact it is the ultimate expression of the community and i think that's how we should see it and we should become much more engaged politically if if we want to make change happen and that that's at all levels from you know local councils through to federal state politics you know Mm. the conventional conventional sorts of politics but also just in you know the types of uh, groups that we become involved with both formal and informal Mm. and we have to be prepared to talk about and discuss and see as real choices what what we have before us so do you have a sense for how you see the future playing out and and i ask that with in mind things like um, paul gilding's book the great disruption which basically says we've left it so late that there's going to be a cataclysmic collapse in in society in western society or worldwide society um he's very optimistic he says we will then rebuild out of that a, a much better society but um that this collapse is basically unaffordable do you uh, sorry unavoidable do you agree with that sort of thinking no i don't mm. <laughs> i think who knows you know, maybe he's right but um i think too many people get hurt if if that's the if that's the future we're looking at and i would be much rather I mean, there's no question that there's some very big, very rapid changes happening, and if, particularly in the energy sector. Well, digital uh, sectors that are affected by the digital revolution uh, um, across the board. But I think... But nothing know, big enough yet to, to solve the problem not, remotely. No, no, not, not big enough yet, and that maybe we'll come back to the national electricity system in relation to that in Australia. But um, But I think we can determine our own futures to a significant extent so so to that in that sort of frame i would want to say we can make change happen in the way that is most um beneficial for people and the planet for people and nature and that's what we should be aiming to do and that's essentially our mission is to make those changes happen in a way that isn't going to completely destroy lives and and uh, environments and try to smooth out the the rough edges of change. And I think one of the things that in in a political sense is interesting and I think really encouraging is that finally the sort of dead hand of neoliberalism is starting to fracture and fragment. And I don't know what the new sort of way of understanding the world will be, but I certainly think markets have had their day as the solution to all and every problem and that we are now looking for other ways of, of going forward. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And uh, just as we're, as we're winding it up, um, I just wanted to bring it back to uh, the Green Institute. And what, that's, like a, that's quite a new project for you, I believe. 
Uh, sorry, which one was that? The, uh, the, sorry, the Green Agenda, pardon me. Oh, Green Agenda. Yes. Um, yeah, so Green Agenda is a project that the Green Institute set up. Now, I have, I'm actually, as of about a week ago, no longer the director of the Green Institute, so Tim Hollow is the new director. Ah, right. And he'll do a fabulous job. Mm-hmm. And so his Green Agenda it will be his baby, along with Claire Ozich, who is, has, has been and is the editor so it relates back to what I was just saying, which is we need to kind of design our own future or at least imagine our own future. And that's what Green Agenda is about. It's about green ideas, green thinking and trying to bring into the Australian uh, discussion uh, some of the, the new ways of, of um, organising and thinking about issues uh, and politics. Amazing, like a massive community of thought. Awesome. Well, hopefully it will be. It's www.greenagenda.org.au for anyone who wants to have a look. Thank you. So just while we've got a few more minutes, Margaret, can you just quickly talk about the electricity market as you see it? Oh, yes, I think it's a disaster. Mm. <laughs> it's um, uh, Increasingly, if you read commentary about uh, Australia's electricity system, people are saying it's the regulatory framework that is the problem, and I think that is exactly right. So what we've got is a framework, speaking about neoliberal, that was designed at the sort of high point of neoliberal microeconomic reform enthusiasm in the 1990s and is sitting there now as a blocker on innovation, on communities being able to work out their own energy futures and on the transition to a clean green uh, system. Uh, It's centralised. It locks in and privileges the vested interests, which are by and large the old coal-fired, gas-fired, fossil fuel people. And it is completely anti-democratic because it never actually goes before a parliament in a way that it can be um, discussed and amended in the normal way that legislation is. So I think it needs to be completely dismantled. It certainly needs to, and I think that process should probably start with a a, a new electricity objective, which uh, brings in the environment and and social objectives, and then rewriting all of the rules that sit underneath it to enable those changes to be carried right through the system. And who would do that? Uh, Well, there's an architecture there that that, that could do that. So there is a rule, rule writing agency, the AEMC, the Australian Energy Market Commission, if it was given a new objective and perhaps a new membership, then I think it could be charged with rewriting the rules in a fairly quick order because, you know, you can't get away from the fact that people depend on electricity, so we don't want to disrupt the system at that level, but we do want to disrupt the system at a regulatory level and give it a new set of objectives. Mm -hmm. So, Margaret, sorry, I think we're out of time, so we can't even get on to the um, carbon accounting this time. Perhaps we'll be able to catch <laughs> okay. up with you another time. But thank you very much for your discussion today. It was really fascinating and it's amazing to see what you've done in, in the time that you've been involved with the Greens and as an environmentalist. Well, look, thank you all very much and um, good luck, everybody, with changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned one website about um, finding out about more about you. Is there any other website that people can go to? Oh, not really, because I'm not That's the director of the Green Institute anymore. Uh-huh. Um, so people can just uh, can 
If they write to the office at greeninstitute.org.au, it will get to me. Okay, great. Thanks again, Margaret. No worries. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Bye-bye. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others that we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. And you can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week. And don't forget our sister show on Monday afternoons at 5 o'clock every Monday afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. Thank you.